When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a There we go. David Swanson, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming to chat with me today. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm really new to World Beyond War, and I find so much great stuff on your guys' site. And I, uh, I attended that Militarism in the Media webinar um, earlier in the year. Um, I know you have a, a multi-week one coming up. I can't remember what the name of it was, but could you give our listeners just a, a quick breakdown of what World Beyond War is about? Yeah, well, I could go on for hours and people <laughs> can look at the website for hours at worldbeyondwar.org. But basically, it is an organization that's global that has members in 175 countries that is dedicated to advancing uh, us toward the complete abolition of war and preparations for war and militaries and weaponry uh, and to do so through both education and activism. So activist campaigns dedicated toward closing military bases, divesting monies from uh, war profiteering, educational campaigns, including an online course that we're doing right now, uh, aimed at getting people to understand the possibility and the desirability and the necessity uh, of abolishing war and how to take that message to others. I was listening to your uh, um, five-minute breakdown, uh, or excuse me, five-year breakdown on World Beyond War, and you had mentioned that, you know, when, when you got it started, that there were so many other anti-war, peace, pro-peace organizations that you weren't interested in reinventing the wheel, I think is what you mentioned, that it was wanting to be a supplement to all those other organizations as opposed to something that is trying to compete with them. Not that we compete in that way, but, but in terms of the ideas and the, the people behind it. Yeah, and uh, I think I've already mentioned what we saw as the unique need, uh, namely that we have an organization aimed at the abolition of the whole institution of war that could talk about not just the the mistakes or the misdeeds of a particular war or battle or weapon system, uh, but the the problems created by the entire institution, which of course kills more people through the diversion of resources away from human and environmental needs into militarism than it does through all the wars, and which does extensive environmental damage as much through the preparations for war as through the wars and so forth, um, and that we create something global. So that, you know, in our in the online course that we're doing at the moment where we have students from around the world, when someone someone refers to our military and how can we can make our military a little better than it is, uh, I'm able to ask whose military? What does that mean? Our military. And and it's a help in getting people to start thinking uh, of themselves as not being identified with any military <laughs> to, to, to get people thinking uh, 
globally in a group that's that's global sure and 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 to 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 really talk past all of the excuses that most people have come up with with pushing away war you know that it it is just but mistakes were made and you know the people we've been educated that the people are monsters when that's hardly if ever the case um my my the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today is about violence caused by veterans. And we talk a lot about veterans suicide, but there isn't nearly as much discussion on the, the potential for homicide that comes from people serving in the military. And um, your book war is a lie discusses this in, in, in quite a bit of detail. Um, Could you give us a little bit of on, on your thoughts on, violence caused by veterans yeah well uh, of course every individual is unique and someone could go into the military predisposed to such violence and remain that way uh and many many veterans are not violent in any way uh but statistically uh if you look for example at mass shootings in the united states uh between uh, looking at males between the, I don't know, in the teens up to middle age, uh, veterans are over twice, at least over twice, possibly much more likely than non-veterans to be those mass shooters. Uh, And uh, the outcome of of being willing to recognize that taboo fact, uh, I think, is not discrimination against veterans or profiling and so forth. It's taking a closer look at the need to cease creating more veterans. Uh, I have a, a friend and colleague uh, named Stacy Bannerman, who's, who's written a book and uh, rootsaction.org. Another group I work for is working with her to raise money for her campaign to spread awareness of the domestic violence that veterans engage in, which I, I don't have similar statistics on. It's, it's Stacy Mike, but it's, in, it's incredibly uh, ill-reported, of course. Uh, but she was nearly murdered by her uh, veteran husband uh, and is in touch with many, many, many survivors in the United States of violence that came almost certainly out of wars that they themselves didn't go to, but their family members, their loved ones went to, their former family members, as divorce is often the outcome. Uh, And of course, as you mentioned, uh, going in, suicide uh, increases uh, with participation in war. Uh, And uh, I, I think understandably so. Uh, I, I think when you're sent into something horrific to do things that are horrific uh, and you're not given any good justification, why? Uh, and the, the Veterans Administration, as my friend and, uh, and a U.S. military veteran, uh, Matthew Ho, uh, frequently points out, the Veterans Administration for decades has said the leading indicator when you're observing a, 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 a member of the U.S. military or a veteran, the leading indicator to suggest the risk of suicide uh, is guilt, is moral guilt, is, is questioning and uh, what the purpose was, uh, distress over what one has done. That's the le- it's, not, it, it's not brain injury, although that might contribute. It's not 
uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, although that might contribute. Uh, it's not, you know, one's politics or religion or race or gender. It's, it's, uh, it's guilt over what one has been a part of, uh, which is, is, in most cases, I think probably a very reasonable, rational uh, place for someone to be. They ought to Absolutely. be feeling guilt, but you have to help them deal with it. Uh, and it's not clear that this society is doing a very good job of helping them deal with it. Uh, and I don't think there's any excuse for having the problem in the first place. We need to stop creating people with that guilt. Stop the wars. I, we did a, um, a panel on moral injury a few months ago. And in my research for that episode, I found out that the VA does acknowledge the idea, the definition of moral injury. The Department of Defense does not. And you see that really radical jump for people because, you know, some even, even pro-war um, veterans would certainly be a lot more willing to admit the damage to their brothers versus the damage that happened overseas. But you take that next step there and you know, it's, uh, but no, it's an expression of, of everything that we brought back. It's an expression of everything that we saw, everything we experienced. And I think you absolutely nailed it on the, the nail on the head about um, what we were told about what we were doing that, and, 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 these days, you can Google it. You know, you can find out what's happening in most of the places you might have served, even if you're not quite removed from it. So there's, there's no end to finding out about the destruction if you just choose to see it in that way, as, as anti-war vets do. Um, the definition of a mass shooting, um, do you think that the current one, which I, if I remember right, it's at least four people were killed in the shooting? Do you think that that's still a honest metric of discussing these? I don't know. I, I suppose different definitions would be useful for different purposes. Um, did you did you have a better? Well, uh, I, I don't. I don't have a specific one in mind. But by having, if if mass shooting statistics only account for the times when at least four people died, it eliminates most of your domestic violence incidents and and that is something like you said is that that's can really be seen if you go past suicide that's kind of the next violent step that of that might take um but we don't talk about you know domestic violence shootings even if they get to that number aren't seen as mass shootings they're not seen as a demonstration of what somebody can do with these weapons with the right messed up mindset right. um so my, my concern is, and I, I used to be a police officer, I, uh, so I, I, have, I have a little bit of experience with dealing with domestic violence, um, but it, it's about how can we find those people? How can we find those incidents? You know, you, you're the friend that you, you described that I'm, I'm very thankful that she's okay and was able to get away from that, but how many other partners of veterans did not, and how, if, if we're not seeing those as actions that come from the violence of service, we're not going to look at them in the same light. And so I think that, you know, we, we, um, it's very easy to say when, when a, when a disturbed person, when the, the, the air force veteran that shot, shot all those people in, in Las Vegas, um, it's really easy to write it off as that they were crazed. They weren't right in their mind, whatever, but to say 
for ordinary people to say, wow, maybe the service did something to him or, or changed him in some way. That is the much greater leap. And, um, yeah, and I think I, I, that's how we get more people onto that line of thinking. I, I would suggest we go so far as to cease calling it a service until we figure out some service it performs. Uh, and absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, uh, we figure out a way it's defensive. But but it's it is curious that it is possible, it's acceptable in U.S. media outlets to talk about other things that mass shooters, by whatever definition, have in common. To talk about the fact that they're almost all male. They're almost all within a certain age bracket uh, to talk about uh, anything they have in common in terms of their race or their background, uh, particularly in in bigoted ways when some minority of, of mass shooters are members of some minority to be disparaged uh, or fear-mongered about. But when you have a, a huge disproportionate number of them uh, have in common that they've been trained in the arts of mass killing, which would seem both significant and very relevant, uh, it's taboo. You can't talk about it. No. Uh, And and you can't talk then in detail about how some of them used equipment they were trained to use in the military. Uh, And... And, and yeah, when you if you change the definition, uh, you know you can talk about a different sort of group. You can include Timothy McVeigh, who didn't use a gun. You can include people who only killed three. You can include mass shootings where there were two mass shooters, not just one, and so forth. Um, but no matter which way you you slice it, uh, you get uh, you get at least. As far as I know, every way I've looked at it, you get at least twice as many tw- uh, proportionately uh, are veterans of U.S. wars as are not, uh, or as the general public as a whole, uh, and uh, and it gets and it gets to be even more uh, the the responsibility of the military because you add in, for example, the young man at the high school in Florida who was trained by the U.S. Army in his cafeteria and wore his JROTC shirt to commit his crimes. Uh, and you have this wonderful movement of young people against gun violence uh, that has clearly been very sternly uh, and, and in a very disciplined manner trained never to mention that fact. Right? You, you, we're, I mean, this is a group of young men and women ready to, to get involved and be active and take risks and speak out and be courageous and end gun violence. And they're putting out videos saying, as long as the police are shooting the guns, as long as soldiers are shooting the guns, it's fine. We don't want anybody else shooting guns. And we'll not ever mention that this kid was trained by the U.S. Army in the school cafeteria, as have been numerous others of these shooters. And you can't mention it. So, uh, th- this is why I write about it. This is why I think it's taboo. I-, I mean, I think there are many other things that are worth looking into, but this is a factor that that gets censored. It does. It's uh, um, even as a as a combat veteran, um, you know, I'm, I'm breath. I'm. It takes my breath away watching other veterans, especially non-combat veterans take the steam out of somebody's criticism, you know, that, that, you know, within, within our dumb little veteran hierarchy, 
there are, you know, combat veterans who are a little worth a little more than non-combat veterans and guys that got a purple heart. And we, we start creating this, this pyramid trying to compete with each other when the reality is, is that it was entirely against all of us in the first place. That the fact that our lives were used in whatever way they were used was not a question for our government. And also another topic in your book that I've, I've really been enjoying uh, reading about. Um, you mentioned Timothy McVeigh, and I, I found a little one-minute clip of him this morning talking about some of his war beliefs really close to the end of the war, and then how they had almost entirely changed by the time the, of, the, of the bombing and everything, that you could see where people had taken his love of country and his propensity for violence, and it nudged it, and it, it pushed it, and like you said, as long as the soldiers, as long as the police officers are the ones doing the violence, ordinary people will find reasons to excuse it. They will find them. They don't have, we don't have to give them reasons. They come up with them all the time. Um, but within the community, you know, that the, there are these, these such sycophantic vets who, we, we, you know, we can't, we're not going to have another Vietnam. We're not going to let them believe that there was another Vietnam, that they failed, that they didn't serve their country with honor and that's not the question at all, but they make it that question. They make that the question to talk down to whoever's opinions they don't agree with. You know, I, I don't know if you're a member of Veterans for Peace, but I'm an associate. That means mm -hmm. a non-veteran member of Veterans for Peace, and I'm on their advisory board. And I think they are doing a great service uh, to the whole world Absolutely. Uh, as members of Veterans for Peace. I do not think they did a service to anyone uh, by being in the military. Uh, I, it, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone is put in difficult situations that some uh, others of us have had the privilege not to be put in and so forth. But uh, it, it, it is possible, as long as you're alive, to begin doing a great service, even if you haven't yet. <laughs> you know, yes. it's, not, it's not too late. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, I think it's very interesting uh, that when he murdered all of those people, he said exactly like a, a just war theorist out of a United States university. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't murdering anyone. They were collateral damage. I had to blow up that building to make a statement for a higher purpose, and they were in the way, and it was not my intention to kill them. They were just collateral. I mean, he, he talked exactly like they talk at, at the podium in the Pentagon, right? And the only reason nobody took that shit seriously was because he didn't control any television networks. It, you know, if, if, if everyone on ABC and CBS and so forth had been saying, oh, Mr. McVeigh has explained to us that it was mere collateral damage and so forth, and said that over and over and over again like they do when we murder thousands of people uh, in, in Yemen or, or anywhere else, uh, by allowing the U.S. military and the Saudi military to engage in a killing spree, uh, it, well, that people would have believed it. People would have understood it. Timothy McVeigh would be a hero rather than a villain. This is the power of repeating something, no matter how ridiculous it is, thousands of times in people's living rooms, on their televisions, through their computers. Uh, and so Timothy McVeigh's reasoning was was perfectly up to grade, uh, he just wasn't in the position to to have the the privilege of using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. Uh, it, 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 but it, it is. It was really astounding. I didn't know that about him. That he had 
essentially parroted just war theory as the reason that he did that. Um, but uh, something I'm going to study, uh, study more as time goes on. David, I know, I know you're out of time. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. I know you're a real busy guy. Um, can you tell the listeners real quick where, uh, where to find your work? Uh, you can go to davidswanson.org and a couple of groups I work for that we've mentioned, worldbeyondwar.org and rootsaction.org. All righty. Thank you so much for uh, coming on, David. I hope we'll, we'll have you on again. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too.